Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the greatest podcast in American history, aka Dang Dude, What the Heck Happened to America. I'm your host, Dylan Shearer, and today we're talking about the Great Society, uh, a chance perhaps at a second New Deal for America. I uh, will see if that happens or not. Uh, so, moving on from um, our civil rights podcast from last week, we'll still be looking at some more um, civil rights actions uh, and sort of how that uh, how that fight for freedom in America continues after uh, the fifties and sixties, and then we'll also be looking at Lyndon B. Johnson's presidency here, and then some of uh, the beginning of war in Vietnam. So um, today we're going to be covering Kennedy and the Cold War, LBJ's Great Society, right? This big sort of program that he wanted to put in place, uh, the rise of the Black Power movement, as well as the rise of the women's movement uh, during this time period. So some major questions for this podcast here that we'll be looking at. One, um, how did President Kennedy deal with the Cold War, right? A lot of the Cold War changed sort of how, how who was in power, sort of the, uh, the ways they would go about the Cold War, right? Sort of everyone felt the need to to fight this cold war, or at least were pushed in that direction, right? It'd be it would have been really hard to to elect an anti cold war person during this time period. Um, but they sort of had their different approaches to it. Well, uh, was the Great Society successful? Is another question we'll be looking at, right? Did uh, succeed in doing what? It, LBJ wanted to do? And then what were the goals of the Black Power Movement? And then how did the goals of now and OW, this group we'll talk about, differ from those of the more radical feminists? Uh, we'll look at some of the splits in the women's movement there. Uh, so before we get started on all that, uh, our character biography for today is Shulamith Firestone. Uh, it's actually a Canadian so, you know, interesting choice for an American history podcast, but we'll go with it um, because she's very important um, to sort of feminism in the United States. Uh, she was born in Canada, but spent most of her life in New York City. Um, she was a leading what's called radical feminists, uh, put a little square scare quotes around that, right? No, they wouldn't have always called themselves that. Uh, author and activist. Uh, she was part of the second wave feminist movement, active in the 60s and 70s. Uh, I'm using that second wave terminology even though it's sort of not always the most preferred, or at least not not preferred, uh, most accurate, right? Sort of the idea of waves uh, gives this idea that it's a very sort of distinct uh, different time periods, but you really get this overlap, um, and sort of it's just sort of a... Uh, a group that grew uh, during the 60s and 70s uh, that might not have been present before and sort of uh, faded away after, but it's still is still in in ongoing feminist uh, criteria, right? But just not as powerful. Uh, but Shulamith Firestone helped found the Red Stockings, uh, which were a radical feminist group in the 70s, working closely on the fight to legalize abortion. Uh, the Red Stockings, an interesting group, they were strongly opposed to to uh, what they called lesbian separatism. Um, they saw sort of interpersonal uh, relationships with men as being an important area of feminist struggle and saw feminists sort of trying to remove themselves from from uh, that sort of male society as being opposed or sort of escapists as being opposed to feminism totally. Uh, like a lot of uh, radical feminists at the times, the Red Stocking saw lesbian, saw lesbian, they called it lesbianism, uh, primarily as a political identity rather than sort of a fundamental part of personal identity, which is what how we see it today, for the most part, uh, they saw it as more as a political thing, are uh, sort of leading them to that take. Uh, the Red Stockings also opposed uh, male homosexuality, so gay men uh, sort of saw it as like this deeply misogynist rejection of women, uh, right? So that same idea, if they see you know being gay or lesbian as a political belief rather than sort of a per. Uh, 
uh, part of your identity, right? That sort of led them to these takes. Sort of, if, so it makes sense on that line, even if you don't agree with it. That's sort of the logic that they were following. Uh, Firestone's most famous book is called The Dialectic of Sex. Uh, which argues that the physical act of childbearing and childrearing, sorry, that until the physical act of childbearing and childrearing were industrialized, that women would never truly be free, right? So this idea that sort of being the being the ones who were forced to do uh, childbearing and childrearing, right, taking all this energy from them, uh, women wouldn't be free until they were sort of free of that part of their lives. And she saw industrialism, sort of industrializing that process as the way to freedom. Uh, she also criticized um, relationships between men and women, arguing that love created bonds between women and the and their oppressors, men. Right, so sort of that that weird line, right, where being lesbian or being gay isn't good, but then also having these sort of love relationships between men and women also isn't good, right? So it's sort of like weird line that they're drawing there, um, but sort of very influential, influential. I also want to look at somebody else who was very influential during uh, this time, Ursula K. Le Guin, uh, sort of, I would say, the premier American genre author, uh, came up during the 60s and 70s. Uh, she wrote books like A Wizard of Ursea, The Left Hand of Darkness, The Dispossessed, and The Lathe of Heaven. Uh, hugely influential to those sort of burgeoning left movements of the time, especially a lot of feminists uh, were reading her work, really interacting her work, and Le Guin was sort of purposely writing to those audiences a lot. Uh, just for example, uh, Dispossessed, one of her books, imagines a world without government, right? So sort of an anarchist world and what that could actually look like. Uh, and The Lesson of Darkness is set in a world where constructs of gender and sex do not exist, right? So Le Guin's sort of offering some potential futures for perhaps what a world could look like without sort of the, the need for this oppressive government or the need for these oppressive gender and sex constructs, right? So sort of offering uh, a potential future and a, a sort of guiding light potentially for a lot of these activists at the time. Okay, so Kennedy's Cold War. Uh, in 1960, John F. Kennedy ran against Richard Nixon, uh, who had risen to be Eisenhower's vice president. If you remember from previous podcasts, right, Nixon had come to fame uh, during the cold, during like the Red Scare, the early Red Scare, for uh, accusing people of being communists, right, and ratting them out. The, the Alger Hiss trial specifically is where he made his name. Uh, Kennedy was the you know millionaire playboy. The Kennedy family was this rich blue bud. Blue blood uh, family, the sort of the closest thing to royalty that exists in the United States. He was a World War II vet, uh, this very middle of the road senator, right? Not super conservative, not super liberal, uh, sort of just straight down the middle uh, and Catholic. Uh, he had to fight against a lot of anti-Catholic sentiment, right? People saying that he would uh, just be, you know, underneath the Pope, that the Pope would be running the United States if Kennedy got elected, stuff like that. Uh, but sort of Kennedy looked good on TV while Nixon looked like a schlub. And, you know, it seems like I may be overstating that point. But if you remember, right, television had become this hugely popular thing in the United States and where a lot of people got their news from. And you see lots of reports of people like talking about switching their votes from uh, Kennedy, from Nixon to Kennedy once they watched him on TV just because Kennedy much more looked what they thought a president should look like. Uh, and then people who would listen to debates on the radio always would say Nixon would won while Kennedy lost, but then it would switch when you watch television. Uh, Kennedy won a very close race, uh, becoming the first Catholic president in the United States, sort of narrowly beat out Nixon. 
Uh, Kennedy, like Nixon, right, had won on this pro-Cold War program. It was basically impossible to be elected president, uh, not, you know, without sort of talking about how are you going to beat Russia, right? How are you going to beat the Soviet Union? Kennedy's domestic agenda was focused on what he called a new frontier. This was uh, pretty vaguely defined, right? Sort of this just general idea, uh, if you want you know, sort of like, ah, well, it's a new frontier for America, right? Whatever that really means. It sort of conjures up some images, but he wasn't very clear on the specifics. Uh, He did not, uh, with his presidential election, have a congressional majority. uh, So his calls for sort of increased federal spending largely went nowhere, right? And there's also some background stuff going on here, sort of a lot uh, well out in the open at this point. Kennedy um, cheated on his wife a lot while he was president. There's also some evidence uh, that he was sort of abusing prescription pills, as well. Um, and if you want to read really something, see something really funny, uh, look up Kennedy's um, letter that he wrote to to Harvard uh, sort of as part of his application, his application letter to Harvard. Uh, and you'll be surprised that, you know, Harvard's standards for millionaires and how they're different from everybody else. Uh, so Kennedy in the Cold War, uh, Kennedy promised to be more aggressive in the Cold War than Nixon. Uh, he sought to do this to be more aggressive through a process that he called uh, that became known as sorry he didn't call it become known as nation building. If those words sort of ring an awful bell in your head, uh, they should right. That's sort of what we were trying to do, you know, during the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War. Clearly, doesn't work. Didn't really work during Kennedy's time in office either. Uh, he announced he'd be willing to use preemptive strikes to prevent communism. Right. So sort of attacking places before anything had even happened. Uh, He used the CIA and billions of dollars of quote-unquote aid money to interfere in Latin American politics and to prop up pro-U.S. governments, right? So in the the guise of, you know, providing medicine, sending in spies to try to overturn uh, perhaps uh, more leftist or communist-leaning governments. He used the Alliance of Progress as this sort of big funding organization for this. In response to to Kennedy's moves here, uh, the Soviets built the Berlin Wall in 1961, right, sort of trying to... Sort of upping, upping the ratcheting up their uh, work as well in response to Kennedy's increased uh, anti-communist efforts. Uh, Kennedy in Cuba, Kennedy's hard line approach to the Cold War got him entangled up in Cuba. Remember Cuba, famously ninety miles from the United States. Cuba had been involved. Um, sorry, the U.S. had been involved in Cuba since the Spanish-American War. Um, and sort of, you know, had Guantanamo were very much involved in their government, had already sort of put troops in there, right, to protect U.S. interests. Uh, but then in 1959, Fidel Castro took power during a communist revolution, right? So overthrowing those pro-U.S. forces, the old regime that had been, you know, doing a lot of awful things to its people. Uh, and Kennedy, in response to this, wanted to act immediately, Right. Uh, and there's sort of two big key events in his actions against Castro. The first is the Bay of Pigs. The second is the Cuban Missile Crisis. We'll talk about those in turn. So the Bay of Pigs, uh, one of the sort of most disastrous, most ill-planned um, CIA actions uh, of all time. Sort of, sorry, uh, yeah, a failed CIA plan to sort of overthrow this new uh, Cuban government, this new Castro's government. Eisenhower had declined to use it, right? Eisenhower had like been offered this plan by the CIA. He said, no, this is like dumb. This is bad. Don't do it. But Kennedy gave the CIA the go-ahead to do it. The CIA's plan involved training Cuban expats living in the United States, so people who had fled after the revolution, who had moved to the United States, to train them and then send them back to Cuba to start a coup, right? So give them arms training, military military training, all that sort of stuff. Uh, but the CIA horribly planned this. It was a failure from the start. 
The people who had fled Cuba in the first place weren't usually military people, right? A lot of them had been businessmen and stuff like that. Uh, just their training was a horrible, horrible failure. Castro knew about the plan from the beginning. He had spies in this expat community, and so basically was immediately uh, notified of what was going on, uh, and so very much was prepared for this. 1,200 of the commandos the CIA sent over were captured. Many were imprisoned, and then some were executed as well. Uh, eventually, um, in exchange to get those prisoners back, Kennedy ended up sending Cuba $53 million in food and supplies. Uh, so just a massive, massive humiliation for this young president, right? Sort of trying to be this stalwart anti-communist, cold warrior, just a huge failure. Uh, the other big sort of issue with Cuba was the Cuban Missile Crisis. So after the failure of the Bay of Pigs, instead of trying to stop and just letting Castro be, Kennedy uh, kept trying to get him out of there, right? Uh, there was multiple failed assassination attempts, sabotage plots, propaganda campaigns run by the CIA, all trying to get people to turn against Castro or to kill Castro. You know, there's stories about, like, trying to get exploding cigars in there, trying to, like, poison hats with, like, you know, plutonium and shit. All this stuff the CIA was trying to do sort of like seems, you know, very like Looney Tunes-esque, uh, and they were all failures. The The U.S. was also working on planning a potential full-scale invasion of Cuba, sort of right, just like taking it over 90 miles, uh, just saying, well, Cuba will now be a part of the U.S. or whatever they were going to plan to do. Uh, and fearful of this, uh, of this invasion, right, sort of it seemed to be the obvious choice to a lot of people. Uh, Castro in 1962 Castro allowed the USSR to base some nuclear missiles in Cuba, right? Saying, well, my, you know, the one country that'll stop the, or at least make the U.S. perhaps reconsider a full-scale invasion is the USSR. Um, so he let the USSR station some nuclear missiles in Cuba, right? Putting nuclear missiles 90 miles from the U.S. At the time, the U.S. had t- nuclear missiles in Turkey as well. This will be important to the resolution of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Those missiles in Turkey were secret, however, uh, and most people did not know about them especially in the United States. So in October 1962, U.S. spy planes took images of the missile sites, uh, sort of discovering in the process Castro and Khrushchev's plan. Uh, The missiles had not been delivered yet to Cuba, but the sites had been prepared for them, Uh, you know, launch pads and all that sort of stuff. And you can sort of see the images online of them. Uh, This led to a 13-day standoff known as the Cuban Missile Crisis, where Kennedy began a blockade of Cuba to prevent the weapons from reaching Cuba, right? So it sort of putting a whole bunch of military ships around Cuba, hoping to prevent um, the USSR from trying to break that line, right, and getting those missiles into Cuba. On October 27th, a U.S. spy spy plane was shot down and killed. That didn't sort of lead immediately um, to war or anything, but it sort of only heightened, ratcheted up the tensions. Uh, And then the standoff ended uh, and when the USSR agreed to get rid of the missiles in Cuba if the U.S. wouldn't invade Cuba and would remove their nukes in Turkey. Uh, The nukes in Turkey part was secret. Uh, It was a secret part of the deal, sort of allowing Kennedy to play that as a win. And then after the Cuban Missile Crisis, there was a direct line between the White House and the Kremlin established, right? Direct contact, direct phone line, sort of the idea of like the red phone, right? So that potential nuclear crisis wouldn't break out over something like this again. Uh, Before, though, Kennedy could uh, finish his presidency, do anything else. Um, He was assassinated 
on November 22nd, only a few weeks after the Cuban Missile Crisis, 1963. Oh, sorry, about, about a year after the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, Kennedy was shot by Lee Harvey Oswald while in Dallas, Texas. There's lots of conspiracy theories about this. I'm not going to go into them. It is interesting that the FBI continues to refuse to release their reports on it, but I, I, I won't say anything else about that. Oswald was killed two days later by Jack Ruby while being brought to police headquarters, um, meaning that he cannot, couldn't be interrogated or uh, sent to the justice system. Uh, the nation was sort of in shock by this, right? Uh, and his assassination transformed Kennedy into this sort of legend, a King of Camelot type figure, uh, which potentially might not have happened if he hadn't been assassinated. Uh, taking over after Kennedy's death was LBJ, Lyndon B. Johnson. Uh, LBJ was sort of this big New Deal guy, had come out of Texas. Uh, sort of, you know, come up with FDR, believe that poverty was the biggest sort of problem in the United States, even more so than racism. And starting in 1964, taking office, uh, he sought to transform sort of American education and end poverty through a series of governmental programs uh, called for America to become a great society. He sort of won that election in a landslide, uh, sort of promising that. Johnson's War on Poverty, um, sort of hugely influenced by this book by Michael Harrington, uh, The Other America, sort of argued that uh, a poor underclass existed in the U.S. that was sort of hidden from affluent Americas. That really influenced uh, Johnson's sort of War on Poverty, and then also a report released by the Council of Economic Advisors, uh, which said that 22% of Americans lived in poverty, right? So all of this is sort of influencing LBJ's view of the United States. To begin the fight in August 1964, Congress passed the Economic Opportunity Act to fight poverty. Uh, just some, you know, sort of flavor here. Um, if you read his biographies, uh, Johnson was like a very big man, right? Sort of very tall guy uh, and would like literally throw his weight around. Uh, to try to get stuff passed. He'd like, you know, really, really get close in with people in their face, sort of like intimidate them. And then he also would literally make people come into the bathroom with him while he was shitting uh, and talk to them about sort of policy plans. Um, he, had, he had a big dick and he swung it around, right? Uh, you know, perhaps, perhaps uh, a little um, problematic, um, but he did get some good stuff done. So who am I to judge? Um, the Eco- Economic Opportunity Act uh, did a couple of things. It founded Head Start. Uh, it created the VISTA program. It started the Job Corps. It founded work training programs. Uh, and it gave $3 billion to these programs between 1965 and 1966. Head Start is uh, sort of this early uh, early education program. Sort of it was led by uh, Lady Bird, Job Corps, the sort of continuation, right, some of these New Deal programs, uh, giving jobs to young people, uh, helping them do, um, you know, work uh, around, around the United States. And then VISTA stands for Volunteers in Service to America, right? So it's sort of also New Deal type era program, uh, having people clean up national parks and all that sort of stuff. Uh, In addition to Head Start, the Elementary and Secondary School Act was passed in April 1965, which gave $1.5 billion to poor schools. In October 1965, the Higher Education Act provided more funding for college education. And the Educational Opportunity Act of 1968 helped fund scholarships and the Upward Bound program, right? Um, so a lot of education stuff here getting passed in the early days of LBJ's administration, a lot of really good programs, a lot of which are still around today, though less well-funded than they were in the 60s. 
Healthcare, Johnson also did some stuff with healthcare. Uh, Congress created one of the most important non-New Deal social programs in 1965 when it passed Medicare and Medicaid. Medicare provides medical insurance for the elderly. Medicaid helps low-income families pay for medical treatment, right? So two huge, 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 massive programs in the United States. Uh, that still exists today and are still hugely transformative for a lot of people. Many people argue that either uh, Medicaid or Medicare should just be expanded to everybody, right? Sort of allowing for a backdoor way into uh, universal health care. Uh, race and immigration. Johnson also did some stuff in this area as well, right? Johnson was integral uh, to getting the Civil and Voting Rights Acts of 1964-1965 passed, right? Using his big frame in a lot of ways to do that, uh, obviously being pushed forward by the freedom movement, uh, but Johnson was still a big part of that. He also appointed Thurgood Marshall to the Supreme Court as its first black justice. Thurgood Marshall will become sort of an integral part of this uh, very liberal court. That would last until the 80s, basically. He signed the Hart-Seller Act in 1965, which liberalized immigration quotas from the 1920s, so allowing more people back into the United States. He also saw a dramatic rise uh, in the number of Asian and Latin American immigrants to the United States. Uh, other great society programs as well. He increased funding uh, for programs that had already existed, like aid to families with dependent children. Uh, also increased the number of people who could access those programs, right? So adding more money, increasing the number of people who could actually use that money, raised the minimum wage and extended how many workers it applied to, so adding more people there, uh, provided more money to remote and rural communities, as well as money for art and the environment, also funded low and middle income housing in 1965. That housing program was truly transformative, in my opinion, right? It allowed people to afford houses, on uh, low-income salaries, uh, but it was quickly gutted, unfortunately, by later people. But it sort of at the time was a very truly transformative program. He also created a new cabinet position, the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, uh, which was led by former president of the NAACP, Robert Weaver. So, you know, you might be wondering why our, our society currently isn't like the Great Society. Well, uh, the Great Society, despite a good start, failed. Uh, it was not able to end poverty. It lessened it a little bit, but even long term, it didn't help. Uh, mostly because the Vietnam War began taking up most of LBJ's attention and most of the funding. Uh, the money went to a war rather than helping the people in the United States, something we've seen over and over and over again. The right, uh, the more conservative right, began pushing back against LBJ's quote-unquote welfare programs, painting pictures of welfare queens, you know, living off the dime of regular people. And many of these great society programs were rolled back, lost their funding, or cut entirely, Right. Sort of one of the greatest what-ifs in the United States if LBJ's Great Society had actually come to fruition and been fully funded, uh, what could have been? Okay, so at the same time, you also see the emergence of a counterculture in the United States, sort of moving from this federal level to a more national, sort of, you know, cultural level. This counterculture formed largely as a reaction to the Vietnam War, taking inspiration from the freedom rights movement. Um, several large protests and political movements developed in the late 60s in the United States. These would eventually come to change not only politics, but American culture as a whole. Uh, this, you know... You still see like a lot of professors at colleges, especially places like UIC, were a big part of this movement. Even guys uh, who we'll talk about a little bit later, like Bill Ayers, you know, weather underground guys, 
are now sort of professors. But at the time, they were, they were pretty radical people. Uh, one of the big groups to come out of this is the SDS, Students for Democratic Society, uh, which still exists today, still holds uh, conferences, not as big and influential as they once were. Uh, but in the 1960s, uh, they were founded on college campuses um, and became the biggest group in what is known as the quote-unquote new left, right? So just like how those sit-ins at the Woolworths um, started on college campuses and spread, how SNCC started on college campuses and spread, SDS started out on college campuses and spread. Uh, this new left was still concerned about economic justice, but focused a lot more on social justice um, than previous left groups had. In 1962, they released the Port Huron Statement, which was sort of the big overarching statement of the SDS, argued that segregation and the threat of nuclear war sort of proved the lie that was inherent in American idealism, right? Advocated for something called participatory democracy. Uh, If you've watched uh, The Big Lebowski, he claims to have written the original Port Huron Statement, which he says is much more radical. Uh, so this free speech movement um, also started on college campuses, uh, became a big one in the 1960s, supported by SDS, but uh, somewhat separate as well. Uh, began in 1964 when the University of California, Berkeley banned public protests. A member of CORE, right, one of those main freedom movement groups, uh, was arrested for passing out political literature. Uh, in response to this uh, arrest, demonstrating students prevented the police from taking the student to jail for 32 hours, right? Surrounding the student with other people, refusing to let uh, the police take them. And this protest movement quickly spread across the country to other universities. Students started demanding other things as well, including student representation in school leadership. Uh, the creation of Black Studies, Chicano Studies, Women's Studies programs comes from this time. Uh, students would literally sort of keep university presidents in their offices, uh, staged you know, what was called riots on campus to try to get these programs. Uh, and these protests often transformed into pro-civil rights and anti-Vietnam War protests. Uh, in response to this, supposedly, uh, UIC here in Chicago was supposedly built uh, to be riot takeover proof. Right, so so in response to all these student uprisings, Daly didn't want his you know college campus to be overrun by all these students. Uh, so supposedly there's buildings in UIC that are riot proof. This is uh, all sort of conjecture and just a myth that I've heard. So I don't know if this is actually true. Uh, but UH sort of where the president's office is, a president's office on the the top floor. You have to take a separate elevator up there. And apparent supposedly uh, you can land a helicopter on the roof of that and take it off. And there's another big building on campus, the BSB building that is supposedly um, was built to sort of make it impossible for students to find each other because it's so confusing to get around. I don't know if that's true. Um, that's just, you know, sort of myths that I've heard. Uh, but also at the same time as sort of SDS was going on and this free speech movement was going on, uh, the black power movement is also sort of growing throughout the United States. 1960s uh, saw this sort of growing militancy within the black community, right? We see these sort of splits after the March on Washington with people like Malcolm X saying that sort of just this legal approach isn't really real freedom. Uh, the Nation of Islam rose up as sort of a new black nationalist movement, right? We saw earlier black nationalist movements, uh, you know, the Marcus Garvey and his black star line. And this Nation of Islam is sort of the new head of a new black nationalist movement. Uh, Malcolm X sort of rose to national attention as one of their leading spokesmen, calling for this independent black nation. And he argued that nonviolence was really a lost cause, right? Saying that, you know, it can only get us so far um, that they will... Still, we, black people will not be free uh, just through nonviolence. Um, 
Malcolm X eventually left the Nation of Islam over disagreements with its leader and was assassinated in 1965 uh, during a speech there. Uh, it became a very powerful symbol to a lot of people in the black community. He also saw a lot of violence in 1965, especially sort of racialized violence, racial violence, especially in Watts, a primarily black neighborhood in Los Angeles. Uh, this violence started after a cop began beating a black man, Marquette Fry, during a sort of a traffic stop. This explosion, like the you know, community violence lasted for six days, leaving 34 people dead and over a thousand people injured. Uh, the rage was sort of directed at the racism of law enforcement at the time and the civil rights movement lack of action with regards towards non-Southern poverty, right? Uh, sort of angry at sort of both these groups as, you know, big Martin Luther King Jr. led uh, civil rights group had in a lot of people's minds, been ignoring uh, poverty that existed outside of the South. And then also sort of law enforcement was still incredibly racist. You also see SNCC begin evolving, beginning changing sort of its politics and its approach to doing this freedom work. Remember, SNCC had been sort of hugely influential, taking over the freedom rides and doing lots of other organizing. Uh, They uh, began working on establishing chapters in the North, uh, in Mississippi in 1966, Kwame Tory, who was then known as Stokely Carmichael, one of the big leaders of SNCC, began using the phrase black power in his speeches. This sort of marked a shift in SNCC. Uh, they eventually became a black-only organization, with white members sort of kicked out, forced to leave, and told to fight racism in their own communities before SNCC had been both a black and a white organization. Not everyone agreed with this internal shift, but it still took place. Uh, after this shift, SNCC soon fell apart, somewhat because a lot of their funding had come from white members. Uh, but Black Power became sort of a more national movement after this, uh, bridging that gap between black nationalism and the more traditional civil rights movement. You also see the rise of the Black Panther Party becoming the biggest sort of black power movement in the United States, black power organization in the United States. They were founded in 1966 in Oakland, uh, spread pretty quickly to other cities, including Chicago, developed programs like free clothing, medical care, free breakfast programs for poor black, commu- for poor black communities. Uh, some groups, not every group, uh, patrolled the streets and armed groups uh, to combat police brutality, right? That sort of be- has become the image of black power, but very uh, not every not every black power uh, group did that, right? Not all of them believed in that sort of armed uh, resistance. Uh, so there's some white reactions to this growing, uh, both the growing black power movement as well as the student movements on campuses. Many white Americans feared and condemned this black power and civil rights movements, right? Uh, Conservative politicians like Richard Nixon took advantage of this uh, in their runs for office, emphasizing the need for, quote unquote, law and order, right? Saying, we'll use the police to make sure these people don't cause any problems, uh, a lot of white people argued that enough civil rights laws had already been passed, that thing, you know, things were equal, so what's the problem here? And then the assassination sort of, the, the one of the biggest reactions, one of the most horrible reactions to this was the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. on April 4th, 1968. This happened in Memphis. Uh, King was uh, there in Memphis for a sanitation workers strike. Uh, sort of this big strike by sanitation workers in Memphis that ended up being successful, but only after King's assassination. Um, He was shot by James Earl Ray, who was an escaped convict and segregationist, sort of an avowed racist, right? Sort of this horrible, horrible death. At the time of his death, King was hated by most of the country. And you see sort of massive uprisings across the country in response to his death, sort of condemning uh, the racist attacks on. Um, You also get other movements sort of springing up during 
the during this time, especially in the wake of the successes of the civil rights movement. Uh, one influential movement was led by Cesar Chavez, Dolores Huerta, uh, who were organizing farm workers in California and the American Southwest. Uh, they began a national boycott of grapes, uh, which proved very successful and allowed a lot of these farm workers to get more money. Uh, they were fighting for both better wages and living conditions. You also see the beginning of the women's movement, sort of sometimes known as second wave feminism, um, starting to spring up once again, right? Taking, taking from the past and sort of the voting rights era, right, when women were fighting for voting rights and sort of moving it forward. Uh, Betty Friedan's book in 1963, The Feminine Mystique, often pointed to as sort of the start of this movement, but there are many other earlier places to point to as well. This second wave feminism sort of critiqued middle class gender roles and discrimination discrimination against women. And Betty Friedan helped create Now or the National Organization for Women. Uh, you also see a more radical version of the women's movement growing concurrently with Now, right? Sort of people like uh, Shulamith Firestone, who rejected gender divides entirely. Uh, they shot revolutions in understandings of marriage and beauty and sex. Uh, this radical movement was far more diverse in both race and class than now. Now is uh, very much sort of middle, upper class white women. Uh, this sort of radical movement included people from across sort of gender, across uh, class lines and across race lines as well. But sort of the fight for abortion, uh, abortion rights and access to abortion, as well as contraceptives sort of found a home in both of these movements. And then you also get the this sort of counterculture, which is less a political movement than sort of more of a cultural movement. And this is where we get a lot of the images from the sort of the 60s and then 70s as well, right? It's sort of giving way to new cultural norms. Young people sort of consciously rejecting traditional social values and consumerism, right? Saying this stuff is, is not good. It's leading us down bad paths. Sometimes we're called hippies. That would be more 70 things. Uh, drug use, uh, sort of music like the Beatles, more open attitudes towards sex defined, sex defined a lot of this movement. Sort of the, one, uh, the switch in the Beatles, you know, style provides one example of this, right? The Beatles going from, you know, sort of the mop tops, uh, wearing suits and stuff to the, the long shaggy hair, doing LSD, smoking weed, you know, having, you know, writing all these trippy songs, right? That sort of provides a good example of that switch. So some conclusions here. Uh, the Great Society was never fully realized. Uh, in the wake of the successes of the civil rights movement, you see more movements uh, spring up across the United States, often far more radical than the freedom movements of the 50s and 60s. Uh, and these movements were fighting not only for political change, but cultural change as well. All right, uh, so that's it for today. Um, next week, we'll talk about the Vietnam War. Um Sort of one of the worst wars in American history. I say that about every war, but the Vietnam, that's especially true. All right, uh, that's it for today, and have a great rest of your day.